Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all listening and enjoying. Uh, so my district is North America. And of course, the majority of North America is the United States of America. So I reach out to a lot of people in the US and I reach out to people all over the world. But today I thought it would be really good and refreshing to reach out to another Canadian. Now I'm not Canadian myself, but I live in Canada, which makes me when I'm in America, I get, I get accused of being Canadian. And when I'm in Canada, I get accused of having an, an American accent. So I'm kind of a, a child of, of two countries and I get to enjoy the benefits of both. So I wanted to reach out to a, a good, a new friend of mine who has the same luxuries. So I'd like to get into you guys all to Josh Kaufman. He is the lighting designer, director, and programmer at Interabang Inc. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today, Josh. Oh, my pleasure. And I, I just want to say that one of the one of the great, you know, uh, joys of being a part of both countries is that you get to pay taxes in both countries. It which is, is so much fun. Yeah, I just dealt with that myself. I uh, the everything got extended a little bit, so we we pay taxes in both countries. Yeah, so we are so. definitely going to get into that. But first, <laughs> I I have to. I have to ask you about your company name. Can you fill us in on what an Interabang okay. is and why that was so important to you to name your entire industry or your entire company Interabang? Absolutely. So the Interabang, I get this question a lot, particularly when I send an invoice and someone says, what, the, what is this? Because a lot of time people are just dealing with me before that. Um, so the Interbang uh, is a non-standard punctuation mark. And there was this guy, I believe it was in the 60s. I should know this really, but, uh, and I can't remember his name. But he decided that in order to make language more efficient, he would introduce a bunch of new characters to the language. And one of them was the Interbang. And the Interbang is basically an exclamation point and a question mark sort of superimposed over one another. And... Uh, his his take on that was that it perfectly sort of encapsulated when you do something that's it's a question but it's like an emphasized question like what are you doing that's an interrobang when you want to be like it's a very different question than what are you doing right mm -hmm. um so that's why we needed another punctuation mark now needless to say we did not need another punctuation mark uh and so that kind of fizzled out but for a lot of the stuff i do I feel like it really encapsulates, you know, the feeling that people look at, you know, some of the projects that I I work on both as a as a lighting uh, designer or, or programmer, 
but also like I do, I build things as well. And people will look at those and go, what, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) But basically it turns the sentence, what are you doing into what are you doing? Correct. That's the, that's the purpose of an interrobang. Exactly. His name was Martin Spector. If I remember. There you go. Uh, and it's, the the, the bank made it onto so some old uh, typewriters. It never made it onto the digital keyboard. Correct. Yeah, uh, they just ran out of space. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty. It's he. I think it's him as well that came up with a bunch of other interesting characters. Uh, like there was one where he wanted to combine the N and the G at the end of a word like ring. Um, so that was a new character. I think it was him. If it wasn't him, it was part of his group, like his his um, colleagues or something like that. And so they thought they would be more efficient. You could write ring with only three characters. But of course, if you look at it, then you are increasing the number of letters in the English language, which also seems a little inefficient. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I can't say if they were right or wrong. I, all I could say is I really liked the Interrobang. I thought it was cool. And um I stuck with it. That's great. It does encapsulate what we're, what's what we're about. You're like, what are you doing? Yeah. What is your job? You do what for a living? You make money doing that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Funny story. It was actually used in an official Supreme court document at one time, which made it an official. Really? Yes. Oh, this is very exciting. I did not know that. Yeah, if you get a chance, there's a podcast that I love. It's called 99% Invisible. And they do an entire 45-minute mm-hmm. podcast on the Interrobang. Really? And I love that legitimacy. podcast. Okay, I'm going to check it out. That's I will, really I will good. definitely link it in the notes. That's where oh, everything I know about the Interrobang comes from. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, yeah. I had no idea. Um, it's, I'm, I feel like we were robbed of some really good punctuation Thanks to just yeah. trying to get it on the keyboard. Efficiency, yeah. Efficiency yeah. has canceled us out. I mean, we still have some really interesting things on the keyboard. You know, like the till yeah. is, I mean, come on. It's a little squiggly line. Come on. It's, it's wonderful. What's it used for? Can't really say. Yeah, I would imagine you kind of have to throw it into some emojis somewhere to do something sure. with it. I Greater than, less than, stuff like that. I don't know, man. There's. Yeah. I would gladly. I did have. I did once find a tutorial online to figure out how to get the Interrobang on your iPhone, and so Uh now if I type exclamation question mark, it will automatically substitute the Interrobang for me. So like I can text you the Interrobang. Brilliant. Fantastic. (laughs) I look forward to getting a text with the (laughs) Interrobang. You got it. Yeah. Right on. So that was a that was a great introduction. But so now let's kind of get into where we're going with this podcast. So I am one of the ones that moved from the United States to Canada. And I did it for primarily the benefit of the education system up here. Makes sense. Do you find that the education system is has helped you in, in your career? Um, or let's kind of start with your story. Like how did you are okay. Canadian? I am Canadian. I've lived in Canada for most of my life. I have done a few stints living in the U S okay. um, mostly when I moved to the U S it's for work purposes. Somebody has hired me and wants me there 
on site or in person or whatever in person is a bad way to say it because I also now, even though I live in Canada, still spend a lot of time in the U S. Um, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason I, I moved. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I spent, I, I spent my childhood in Canada and various places. I went to school here. Um, but I worked, I work in the U S it. it started out. I mean, it started out, you know, doing trade shows and that kind of stuff. And then, gradually grew until I would had moved there a, a couple of times. Um, I lived in Vegas for a while, lived a couple other places for a little bit. Um, but for me, it's, it's sort of my, uh, my family is here. And so that right. makes moving away a little bit hard. Um, also, uh, I mean, it's, it's a different situation now um, with my work permit, which I know we can, we can get into later. Um, but the, but at the time, the last time I lived there properly lived there with like all my stuff, um, my work permit was coming to an end and that was, that was 2008. And the problem was that there wasn't a whole lot of work around. Um, and there was nobody that was going to get me a work visa. And so that meant that if I was touring and stopped touring, like I, I, I had some international tours lined up and everything was cool. Um, but that meant that when I came back from the road, I'd be in Las Vegas and I would not be able to work. And uh, legally, I should say. Right. Uh, and so then the problem would be like, okay, cool. I live in Vegas. Um, I have friends here, but I have no family. I have no way to make money why am I, what, what am I doing? You know, um, I'm definitely one of those guys, one of those, I mean, freelance people that, that, uh, I look at the, I, I'm always a little bit worried about the future and like, boy, the last few months have really ratcheted that up. Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't really take for granted that work is just going to come my way and that, you know, who cares about spending all my money right now because there'll be more down the road. I, I I'm sure there will be, I'm sure that, um, everything, uh, some or something anyways, will come together. I'm, I'm thankfully a skill. I have skills and, and they are applicable to many industries. So, you know, I could go work in construction if I needed to, you know, I could support myself if I needed to. Mm-hmm. But the point about living in the U S with no work visa was that I couldn't, Right. There would be literally nothing I could do if I lived there and had no legal way to work. So a lot of the people who have never had to deal with this, the idea is that you shouldn't be able to come into the country and start taking jobs without proving that you're worthy of having that job. So there are some, so there are some rules in place, but they're very counterproductive. That. Uh, Obviously, um, it's a tough one. It's a very, it's a huge tough one. And I think part of the, part of the problem, like, like so many of the issues that we run into in our industry is that we fall into weird gaps. Right. You know, like everything, insurance, healthcare, you know, employee versus not a contractor. Like a lot of these things are, are, are make super sense when you're working in retail or whether you're working at a construction site or whether you're working as a, as a lawyer or something that, that is a very well defined, but 
our work comes from many different, for most people, I should say, comes from many different places. Even if you work for, let's say, the union, you know, you can still end up with so many different employers uh, that it makes things very tricky. Um, and so the, 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 the regulations, that's the word I'm looking for, the regulations that are, that, that are mm -hmm. in place for people coming into a country, and this is whether you're coming into Canada or whether you're coming into the U.S. to work, um, those regulations are there to prevent the sort of importation of cheap labor, basically. And it right. makes sense, right? You, yep. you are, you, they are attempting to say, like, look, we can't, you can't just go to uh, some country where the standard of living is a lot lower and the pay rates are a lot lower and just load people up on a bus or, or a plane or whatever, bring them to this country, right. do all this work, and then send them away. It's, that's not right. sort of right. And I get that. Um, our industry is weird though, because for instance, I live in Canada, but I mostly work in the U S. Um, I am, I, I, you know, I've gone through the visa process. I have a work visa, so it's fine. But it, 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 the visa process itself is, is sort of tricky. There's a, there are a number of qualifications that you have to prove. And there's things like the one that, that always, you know, flabbergast people is that when I apply for a visa, I have to prove that I have work for the length of the visa. So, right. so there's a couple of ways to do that, right? I could say the length of the visa that I'm on can be a maximum of three years. So it costs the same amount of money for me to apply for that visa for three years as it would for three months. So if I'm paying for that visa, which is expensive, um, between the visa fees and the lawyer fees and all of the documentation fees and filing fees and all that, it's a lot of money. Um, and it's a, it's a large process to do. So I could go through that for, let's say I've, I've signed on to, um, you know, the band X summer tour, it's three months long. I could go through that process and get that visa for three months and then spend that money. Or I could go through the process and, get that visa for three years and it's the exact same money. Mm -hmm. um, but if I do it for the three years, I have to show that I have work for those three years, which is like impossible. Nobody. Yeah. I can't even go to, you can't even go like forgetting, forgetting our part of the industry, the, the lighting side of the industry, go to any like number one recording star and say, cool, what are you doing in three years from now? They don't know. Yeah. No one, we don't, we just don't, our industry doesn't plan like that. And so it's very weird. Like that part of the, that part of the visa process is weird. You know, um, ultimately you do the best you can. I have thankfully repeat clients that I can say, you know, generally we do this show every year at this time. And so I can build out enough of a, of a potential schedule. Thankfully they, it's not like they, um, fine you if you don't stick to that schedule. Um, I think really they're just trying to weed out people who are like, I don't know, I drove across the border. Why can't, what do you mean I can't do anything? Many years ago, yeah. like many, many years ago, uh, like frankly, it's embarrassing how long ago it was, but it was a long time ago. I was just a kid. <laughs> I used to go, I used to live in a town called Winnipeg and Winnipeg was, that's about, it's like just north of Minnesota. And I used to go down to um, my family lived down there. So I would take the bus sometimes, the Greyhound bus from Winnipeg down to just outside of Minneapolis. 
And one time we were crossing the border and some guy show was on the bus and he was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to teach. And they're like, cool. Do you have a job? And he's like, Nope. And they're like, okay, do you have a work visa? And he's like, Nope. And they're like, what do you, you, you can't come into the country and just say, I'm going to find something like there are rules for that. If you do want to come into the country without a job, without a bunch of stuff, there's a bunch of um, procedures that you need to follow so that you prove that you are able to support yourself. And ultimately that's what they're trying to prevent is that uh, two things, people from taking jobs, but also people from coming in and just being a drain on the system as they would put right. it. Right. That so process like that, that, can be very intrusive. They, uh, yeah. they, they want all your information. There's a lot of information that I have to give up when I, when I apply for that. Now for me, it's worth it, right? The, the people that I like working with, the people that I um, enjoy working with uh, primarily work in the U S and so for me, not being able to work in the U S would be a problem or it would, de or sorry, I guess I shouldn't say it would be a problem. It would definitely require a bit of a, of a shift in my plans right. for the future. Um, but yeah, it's not an easy process and it's a, it's a bit frustrating sometimes because there are, there are definitely people who come to the U S without, um, without going through the process. And I mean, right. I spend, I spend a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort making sure that I have done everything correctly, which goes to the taxes thing as well. Right? Like I spend a lot yeah. of money both in taxes, but also making sure my taxes are correct because uh, it's important to me both morally that I do the right thing, but also it's important to me that I don't want to ever be locked out of where I love to work. You know, this is the type of work I love to do. I like doing this work. I like the shows. I like the people. I like the process. I like all of it. I don't want that taken away because, oh, well, it's just too much of a hassle to file that paperwork. Or, boy, I would have I would have gotten that visa. But, man, you know, like, it was just, like, too much, man. Um, yeah. And would I love to not have to do that? Oh, yeah. yeah I would yeah. love to not have to do that. But yeah. I'm going to keep doing it because I really don't want to lose out those opportunities. One of the things that not many people talk about, and it's probably because they can't, and I don't know why I'm going to, but I, I'm going to anyway. It's not, even if you have filled out all your paperwork perfectly, you've paid all your fees, done all your due diligence, gone through all the bureaucracy. If you get one guy on a bad day or one border guard who just doesn't like the look of your face, they can just stop you and there's almost nothing you can do about it. And not only can so they stop you, but they can, they can do things that make it hard in the future as well. So it's not just, Oh, you're not getting through the border today. Try again tomorrow. It's you can't come through anymore for some period of time. And then every time you do come through, you will be subject to uh, extra review or extra, whatever. It's a very, um, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting process, I guess you could say. Um, mm -hmm. And like a lot of processes like that, it feels like it, there is a, a very an uneven standard. Um, yeah. Uh, it's very, it's left very much up to the individual person who is behind the desk uh, mm -hmm. to, to decide what, how, how that, how that day goes for you. Um, I once was going through, on a bus, this was on a tour. We were going back into the U S 
and the border guard was furious that I didn't have an I-94 form. And the I-94 form is just a, it's a record of crossing the border. Um, and it cr- costs, I think it costs five bucks or something like that. And they were like, well, how have you been going back and forth without an I-94? I'm like, I don't know. You guys issue the I-94s. So <laughs> all of the other border people chose not to do it and you're choosing to do it, I'm happy to pay you the $5. I, I, I like, that's not a problem, but I don't have an answer. It's not like I've been sneaking across the border, check the computer. It'll have all of my crossing. Right. Yeah. You know, like this is not, this is not something I can, I can, I can affect, you know, and this is one a, wrong word. And they're like, are you, uh, are you criticizing me? Are you saying yeah. you're not supposed to have 94? Like, that is not what I said. I'm just saying that. Yeah. The, the choice to have very best to follow the, yeah, follow the, the rules choice to here. have that thing or not have it is not my choice. It's yeah. your choice. You're choosing for me to have it. Here's my $5. No problem. Yeah. But it's, I, you can't get mad at me for not having it. I, I've never tried to sneak across the border. I've never, you know, smuggled across the border. That's not, that's not how it goes. No. Um, so yeah, it's, it, that part is stressful. And there are, there are definitely times on tour where, um, I have chosen to cross the border by myself because it's often easier for me uh, or at least less stress inducing for me mm-hmm. to know that I'm not going to accidentally hold up the bus or, uh, you know, heading into a day off. The last thing you want to be is that dude who uh, gets held at the border for an extra two hours and everybody else is, is out, but they're waiting on you. And everybody's like, I wanted to get to the hotel, you know? So there are times when I've, taken on the expense of getting my own way there because it just seems yeah easier we don't like being the one to have to go to production say okay so there's this thing that's gonna happen when we get there and i don't think anybody likes being that that person uh for any reason whether it's it's uh oh uh, you know there's a there's i had a incident in the past or something like that um i know a lot of people uh, who have spent a lot of time and money, much like I had to work in the U.S., there are a lot of people who have spent a lot of time and effort and money to make sure that their whatever whatever thing on their record is dealt with, and they've they've mm-hmm. done the the right thing, and they've they've done the they've done all of the work, they've gone to the lawyer, they've done all the paperwork, they've done whatever they need to do, and then they get to the border and they still get sort of harassed, and that happens coming into Canada. And that habit's coming into the U.S. And there's really uh, no, I, I mean, I don't know that there's a way around that. It seems funny because, because we're sort of complaining about um, free border access. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, on the other hand, this is a process that, that is um, tricky. And it's, it's, it tricky tricky. For, it's tricky for me. And I am certain... Um, that there are people out there who is who it is a whole lot more tricky for. And I think that, uh, you know, it probably sounds trite to them that I'm like, I'm worried about this because there are people out there who every time they cross the border for many different reasons, whether they've had um, something on their record in the past, whether they're wearing certain clothing, whether they have a certain skin color, whether they are certain uh, gender, whatever it is that they go mm-hmm. through this process and are harassed every time. Yeah. And I, I, I wish that there were 
a, a better solution to this. This seems like one of those things where um, the whole the process should be a whole lot more mathematical, right? Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? Yes. Okay, then you're through. Period. You should be able to call ahead and say, hey, so here's my situation. Am I going to be able to get through today? And it should be a yes or a no. Right. Here's, here's, here's the work I've done to make this happen. Um, I've ticked these boxes. Does that mean that at the, you know, line four on the form, you write yes instead of no? Mm -hmm. And there's no, there's, there, that, that just, there isn't that math. Yeah. So on top of all that stuff, here's something that uh, Josh and I have to constantly explain to people. So I live about 30 minutes from Detroit. And as an American with an American passport, if I want to work in Detroit, I have every legal right to do that. But at the same time, if somebody wants me to go work in Detroit, I have to explain to them that I live in another country. I'm probably closer than some other people who live in, in any of the Detroit suburbs, but there's an international border between me and my paycheck. So I have to be able to explain to people like, Hey, so I might be 15 minutes late or 20 minutes. Late. I don't know. I might be perfectly on time, but there's an international border crossing in on my drive to work. And that, uh, it puts some people off. I, I have yeah. to admit there have been people like, what do you mean? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I the, for me, Again, generally, I spend, uh, I, I have done the work to make this as smooth as possible for everybody involved. Um, and I work very hard, at, like really hard with the people that I like to work for to make this as easy as possible. Um, because I don't, I, I don't know, for me, like the number one rule of, of working in this industry is don't be a jerk, in my opinion. <laughs> and and part of not being a jerk is owning that I am in a unique situation, right? So mm -hmm. uh, while everybody else is flying from, you know, LA to Vegas to do this show, I am flying from a lot farther away and I'm flying international and I'm crossing borders and there's all kinds of extra stuff that goes on with that. And so, uh, and, and I have, I have like, there is a point with a lot of new clients where I'll, I'll just have to say like, look, I know it sounds like I'm being pushy about a lot of this, um, travel arrangements. Uh, here's why, you know, and I put it right. all out on the table. Like, here's why this is the, this, I'm trying to get on a flight that will give me opportunity in case there's a missed flight or a delay or something like that, that gets me in there, gets me to you with enough time so that there aren't any delays, so that there aren't any problems. Um, and, you know, like, well, what do you mean you want to fly in the night before? I'm like, it's winter time. Yeah. Chances are the flight's yeah. going to get delayed and me flying out the morning of could turn into me flying in the evening of. Right. Uh, because, you know, that's just, how the, that's just how it goes. We don't know. When we book this flight, however many weeks out, we don't know if there's going to be a snowstorm that day or not. But if there is, and you've mm -hmm. flown me through Chicago, and there's a snowstorm in Toronto and a snowstorm in Chicago, I mean, good luck. I'm just not going to be there. And not to mention, we're probably dealing with Air Canada somewhere along the lines, and they are uh, not known for their attention to detail on uh, uh, flight they, scheduling. And they have their challenges. The the I yeah. guess the one nice thing about the level of travel that I do is that I do a lot. 
And so at the very least, I have access to help from them. Now, it doesn't help when there is uh, a snowstorm and all flights are canceled. They're not going to put a plane out for me. That doesn't doesn't happen. (laughs) But at least when there are um, issues, uh, I can often talk to somebody uh, within an hour, let's say, (laughs) instead of within two hours, and at least try and work out an alternate path. And there, you know, again, don't be a jerk. When you talk to somebody who's having that day, like, their day is worse than yours because Mm -hmm. you have to only talk to them. They have to talk to hundreds of people like you, all of whom are pissed. Um, And just, you know, taking, uh, you know, my number one travel tip is just be flexible and try and think um, not standard. So I got stuck. I forget where I was recently. I think it was, I can't remember exactly. I think it was like, and by recently, I mean last year, but it was like San Francisco or something like that, or Phoenix or so- somewhere okay. in the Southern US. And they were like, uh, your flight's canceled. And I'm like, cool. And they're like, we'll put you on the next flight tomorrow. And I'm like, that's not ideal because actually tomorrow night I fly out of, I have to fly to Europe. So it, you know, I w- was really hoping to be able to actually do my laundry at home rather than just go airport to airport to airport. So so I was like, okay, well, hold on. It's like 11 a.m. here. It was a mechanical problem, right? The weather was fine. Like it's 11 a.m. here. Surely there must be something we can do. So we started looking around and lo and behold, it was, I had to take two hops or something like that and then an overnight flight, but I still got there at the beginning of the day and I had all day and then I flew out that night rather than arriving at 6 p.m. and then flying out at 9 p.m. again. <sighs> You know, and that was, that was worth it. But that, but, but coming in at 6am and flying out at 9pm was way better. And all it took was me like saying, okay, well, I get it. There's no direct flights. What other airports are you running flights from in this part of the country? Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a later flight from San Diego or San Francisco or whatever it was. Cool. Is there room on there? Oh, there is. Okay. Well, maybe we could, you know, work that out. So once you've arranged everything to legally work somewhere then all the arrangements of getting there yeah are there any major differences for you working in a country that you're not from Uh, do you find any cultural or technical differences between working nomenclature is sometimes different i was always taught that multi-cable is called socopex like it's spelled but in the states it's often called soco right (laughs) Which that's my, like, my number one, like, what? That doesn't make sense. Um, I mean, that aside, like, what we do in North America is fairly standardized. Um, I think that equipment-wise, gear-wise, uh, you know, a Canadian Source 4 and a U.S. Source 4 are the same. The Verilite that you get in Toronto is going to be the same as the Verilite that you get in L.A., whatever. Right. Um, regulations can be a little bit different, but for the most part, you know, um, well, first of all, I try and stay away from a lot of the like heavy duty stuff because frankly, there are people way better at uh, figuring out loads and dealing with transformers and that kind of stuff than I am. But, you know, for the most part, safety standards are the same pretty much across both countries. Um, or at the I think very least, a little bit stricter in Canada than they are, in the US, but they but are that's marginally. True. 
Um, but it's also not without, not, not outside the realm of possibility. If you showed up at a job site right. in the U S wearing uh, steel toes and a hard hat these days, most people will be like, Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Everybody does that. Yeah. Um, right. If you wore a high vis inside, uh, a lot of people would start saying, what are you doing? But in Canada, um, that is part is, you know, part, part of what we do. Uh, um, that's is particularly in Ontario. That's part of the part of the regulation that we have to follow for numerous mm-hmm. historical reasons, not, not great historical reasons. Um, so, you know, I, the, that part is, is fairly similar. Um, I think that, that uh, the, the big difference here is that it's a lot harder to tour and it's a lot harder to, it's a lot like it, you don't see the same level of regional lighting companies and regional, regional work that All happens right. in the U S and that's because our regions are too big. <laughs> um, yeah. I grew up in, I grew up in Winnipeg uh, and Winnipeg is, is geographically like East to West about the center of Canada. And there's like nothing there uh, outside the city. The closest city is Brandon and brand, you know, Winnipeg is a city now of 750,000 or something like that. Um, Brandon at the time, I think was a city of like 20 or 30,000. And then there's nothing for like a day in either direction. And I don't mean like an overnight, you know, like five, six hour drive to the next gig type of another day. I mean like 16 to 24 hours of solid driving. And that's Mm -hmm. why a lot of touring in Canada is like, is quite hard because there's a lot of space um, between the cities, between the little pockets of where there are enough people to make putting up a gig economical. Um, Whereas in the States and a lot of places you go four hours down the road and you're in another, if not major market, at least major enough that you can then uh, have a, have an arena show or a theater show Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, In terms of dealing with people, I think people are, are, you know, I see, I see a lot of the same people in both countries doing this work, whether it's from the lighting side of things or uh, local hands or venue managers or whatever. I think our industry attracts a certain type of person. And and (laughs) so, you know, they, they tend to be, they tend to be those people, which is great. You know, I, it's, it's, a little bit harder going to farther countries, whether it's Europe or South America or something like that. I feel like there's a very, the culture difference is greater, but between Mm -hmm. Canada and the U S it's like, it's, it's not bad. Maybe I say sorry a lot more. (laughs) I do find that Canadians apologize for a little bit for just about everything. Uh, Yeah. From the prime minister down, everybody kind of is willing to apologize if they're wrong. I, you know, I, again, don't be a jerk. You know, I try, yeah, I try hard not to, not to be somebody that makes other people's lives difficult. <laughs> so one of the things I don't think I see as prominent anymore is there used to be band nationalism where the uh, Canadian bands would only tour Canada. And I don't think that exists much anymore. I feel like, and I'm uh, thinking I, of bare naked ladies and uh, yeah. tragically. I think that part of that. So yes, and for those who have never listened to either bare naked ladies or, uh, well, bare naked ladies did have quite a few U.S. hits, but tragically hip did not. Sadly, um, 
feel free to check them out. They're totally worth it. They're both great bands. Um, but I think that, that um, the, the industry changed a lot uh, between when we were doing that and now. And I think that also, I think people's, people's like appetites for some of that have changed. Those bands, particularly Tragically Hip, they did some tours like in Michigan and that kind of stuff, like Northern US a little bit. But for the most part, they were a Canadian band and they, they managed to really capture a Canadian audience that was hungry for Canadian music, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while it would have been, I guess, uh, financially great if they hit it big and were doing arena shows across the, the both Canada and the U S that wasn't, that just wasn't their thing. Um, we also get a lot more now that we now that we all consume our media sort of online instead of on radio. Um, there's a lot. I think it's a lot harder to become a breakout Canadian band. Like there are don't don't get me wrong. Right. There are a lot of people that still listen to the radio, particularly you know in at work in work situations or in the car or something like that. So they, that that type of thing still exists, but. Um, our, the way we discover new music is very different nowadays. And um, I think that that contributes a lot to, to where we, where we get these new bands, you know, it is just as easy for me to have access to a band from, I don't know, Venezuela as it does, as it is for me to have access to a band from Toronto. If they're both on Spotify, I just right. have to know what to search for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the music industry you know, spends a lot of money on marketing and, and figuring out, you know, like targeting, um, bands to, or artists to, um, you know, to their markets, to their, and, and, and believe me, I feel, well, again, I'm guessing here, but it sure feels like there's a lot more emphasis placed on, on targeted marketing. So when somebody is coming up, there's a whole team at the label that figures out, ah, your target market is this group of people. We are going to push your music at this group of people, be it through Mm -hmm. Spotify or through Instagram or YouTube or whatever it is. And so um, I feel like organically bands, you know, coming up with a song that some local DJ likes and plays it on the radio a bunch of times. And then more people call in and request that song and build a following that way. That doesn't so much happen anymore. I don't think Um, that exists anymore. Yeah. It's a little sad. Um, On the other hand, think about the sort of rich tapestry of music that we now have access to. So there are, there are pluses and minuses, right? There are bands that, that I listen to now that I never like, will never be played on Canadian radio because they are from a different part of the world or they're from a not really like popular kind of music or whatever, whatever the reason is they just wouldn't, they just wouldn't be here and I wouldn't get to listen to that. And that's a bit sad. Um, That actually touches on another subject. That's really important that not a lot of people know, and I don't fully understand the ins and out myself. So please don't uh, misquote (laughs) me, but Canadian media requires a certain amount of Canadian bands to get Correct. licensed to, to broadcast in Canada. Yeah. That, that regulation has shifted over the years. So I, I honestly can't tell you what it currently is, but that, 
Those are commonly known as the CanCon uh, laws or Canadian content laws. And um, mm -hmm. yes, part of the deal was that in order to get a radio station license or a TV license or whatever, you had to play a certain percentage of Canadian content. And the idea was to try and protect our musical, you know, basically our entertainment industry against somebody coming in from a different country and just overrunning it completely with wads of money. Our, our market is right. much smaller than other markets, be it Canada or sorry, be it the U S or China or whatever. We, we're, our country is not huge, right? Physically we're quite large, but um, population wise we're not. And so uh, the amount of money that one U S record label could make is I'm sure could dwarf the entire Canadian, you know, music industry. Right. I'm just guessing here. I don't have numbers for that, but I'm sure that it's possible. Right. Uh, yeah. And so if that's the case, then it would be really easy to come in and essentially buy the U the Canadian industry and only play what you wanted. And so the CanCon right. laws were, were put in place to try and encourage Canadian talent and also to try and protect Canadian talent. And I, I think that over time they've revisited them, um, and change that percentage, change what, what the requirements are. I have no idea what it currently is. It might be zero for all I know. Um, I know that, that that was talked about at one point. Um, well, but it's harder yeah. to regulate now with, with, with Spotify and sure. uh, Pandora and sure. iHeartRadio. How do you even, how do you impose those regulations on behemoths like it's a, live nation and yeah whatnot. it's tough um i think that uh the idea is is not a terrible one necessarily again um i i don't know where it currently stands so i don't know how successful they've been um i think it would be hard when you start switching to things that are sort of more on demand how do you enforce that right like you can't right. If you had a, a regulation that was like, oh, cool, you want to watch uh, Netflix? Well, you have to watch, you know, for every <laughs> five American shows you watch, you have to watch one Canadian show. Like that's, uh, that's yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> I want to listen to salsa music. Well, you have to listen to one Canadian salsa band. Like that does not yeah. sound interesting to me at all. Exactly. I exactly. And, I, and, for, and for so many of the... Um, sort of more streaming type, you know, when it's, when it's just playing songs, you're not choosing them individually. Um, all of that's, you know, driven by so many crazy algorithms. I don't know how you would ever figure that out. Yeah. And what, it, what if you did, what if you did want to go on and just listen to Brazilian music? Like, mm -hmm. but now you have to listen to some Canadian Brazilian music. I, I, <laughs> how would that happen? So one of the, the effects of that though, is that, the Canadian government supports Canadian arts with a fervor that you rarely see in the United States. There are so many grants available and there's just there funding available for artists. And it, it's, it's really refreshing to see up here. I had no idea that uh, that sort of federal support was available to citizens. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's obviously it's not um, it's not uh, like a Garden of Eden situation here. It's not like no. Oh, I've you know what I got I, I bought this uh, 
two turntables at this garage sale. So now I can get, you know, $500,000 from the government to make a rap album. <laughs> like that's not, that's not exactly how it works. Um, there no. are, it's a granting process. And so for those who have never had to deal with grants, um, they are uh, their own special kind of weird. Um, but basically you, you know, in order to access this type of stuff, you have to come up with, proposals and you have to write stuff and, and you have to submit mm -hmm. and there's peer review and that kind of stuff. And it's really, again, I think adds to the process because it means that you can't just like, it's not a lottery. You're not, you don't just like, well, I sent in my thing, maybe I'll get some money. And it's also not, not like, well, only if you have 12 uh, platinum albums, do you get support? Um, right. And I, I'm, and I know that there are people uh, who have much more information about this and experience with that than I do. I have some cursory information or experience with grants, um, primarily on the theater side um, versus the, the music side. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, the, the, the Canadian governmental support of all of those programs, I think is very important. I think there are a lot of people who look at that money as kind of a waste because it doesn't um, necessarily contribute directly uh, to, to, you know, like, well, I got, I had to pay my taxes and they gave this money to somebody else. Why didn't they just work for their money? You know, it's, I think in our country, because our population is a lot smaller and um, because our uh, geographically, we are so large, it is very hard to be a successful musician or to be a successful, you know, to, to be a successful, whatever, um, Lighting designer even. Sure. Yeah. hundred percent. And I am not, uh, there are no grants for lighting designers that I'm, that not I can that I'm apply aware of. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it is, it is harder to do that. And I have, I have some friends who have done a really great job at being very successful with Canadian bands. And I continually look at them and in awe of what an amazing job they have done of taking this market just, just being super badass at what they do, you know, like it's, mm -hmm. it's, there are not many Canadian bands that will put up a 20 truck tour. In fact, I would say that at the moment there are none uh, since Rush isn't really performing. Right. Um, but you know, like maybe Celine Dion could support something like that. But even so, like if you look at the major markets in Canada, so that would be like a, like a two or three week tour. Right. And, and maybe at tops. Right. And so that so that's an awful lot of money to try and put together a big, massive tour when you're, you just, you know, you're not going to make it back. Like there's no way you're not going to be playing to 20,000 people every night because right. there just aren't that many people to come out to those gigs in a lot of places. Right. So to take over the Canadian market. You only have to take over about 12 large cities. It's a, yeah. And then yeah. your, your tour is over. Correct. And then it's, and then that's it. Right. And so it's not like, and you can't go back because you would have, you'd be circling like, you know, the tours that go through all of the A houses in the U S and then they come back next year and they do all of the B houses in the U S and that, or, or they do, you know, every, they just, they feel like we'll do, we'll do Cleveland this year and Cincinnati next year. Right. right. And we'll like that type of thing. That's not really possible here. That doesn't really work. There's, I mean, maybe it would work for like Calgary and Edmonton they're close enough right. that you could play one and then the other. But, you know, Winnipeg's in the middle of nowhere, Toronto, maybe you could play Toronto and then maybe Hamilton yeah. or something, you know, yeah. but like 
you know, London's not that big, right? Waterloo, the Waterloo area is not yeah. that big. There's just, it would be, so, it would be tough. And so the government, the government has, has put together these, these, I don't know, these grants and so forth to help people like, and it's little stuff too, right? Like one of the biggest ones that I remember growing up, I used to watch, there used to be a shit. Well, there's still a channel called much music though. It's very different, much like MTV used to be very different than it is today. Um, and I remember watching videos, um, on that station growing up. Uh, and this was like a pretty new thing. Music videos were like, Whoa, this is crazy. And the ones that were Canadian artists were also often supported. It's called a, a video fact was the name of the grant. Um, because they're called factor grants and the video fact grants were grants for people to make music videos. And like, I'm sure going back, if we looked at them, we would be cringing pretty heavily about how they look and the relative production value and that sort of thing. (laughs) But that's what it took to get even that level of video to get produced because there just Mm -hmm. isn't the, it's not like these artists were making a ton of money and it's not like the labels were making a ton of money that someone was going to say, cool, we're going to splash out 75 grand on a music video. Is it going to generate record sales? We don't know. This is way too early in the industry. I don't do, do music videos do anything. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And so if you're not making that money and they weren't, then, then how do you, how do you justify spending the money to, to, to do all that kind of stuff? Um, Nowadays, I think we look at a lot of that like advertising. Right. um, Because, in a, in a very interesting way, the music video, which essentially used to be an advertisement for the album is now a revenue generator in itself because people watch the music video on YouTube or other streaming services. And then there are ads and then there are pop-ups and then there are ways that whoever posted that video is making money. Um, Mm -hmm. But even still Canada isn't quite the extreme consumer culture that the United States is so that there, there isn't even that much, there isn't as much uh, advertising available. There's not those, those funds just aren't in the same uh, quantities. That's true. And I I think that there are, there are different reactions. Like I, um, you know, a lot of us cities I'll go to and I'm wherever downtown or by the arena or where, you know, wherever I inevitably end up the close to the gig and there'll be posters and billboards and something for some upcoming album. And it's, it's rarer in Canada that I will see an ad for, for that type of thing. Yes, it exists, particularly for huge artists. You know, um, I will see a billboard or an ad or something like that that says so-and-so new album out on whatever. Um, cool. But in the, in, in the U S I feel like there's a lot more, those those ads are a lot more present um right and i don't i honestly don't know if that's good or bad i there are there are definitely uh albums that i have found out about uh because i happen to walk by a a poster somewhere Mm -hmm. um because try as i might i am not the best at keeping up with all of the (laughs) artists that i like listening to it just i guess it turns out that i like a lot of music a lot of different music and so it's tough particularly nowadays when i don't really listen to the radio very much it's hard to know when something new is coming unless i subscribe to a thousand you know social media feeds or newsletters or whatever and i i don't 
uh, I don't do that because most of the time I, I don't care what my favorite artist has had for lunch. Um, but I would care that they're putting out a new album, right? Like there, there's like a, that has all become one feed um, right. in a way that is just sort of just tiring sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine a lot of that comes down to just how fierce the competition is in the United States. Yeah. I would agree with that. There's a lot. There, there are a lot yeah. more artists and they particularly these days when, when the, the sort of barrier to entry has been coming down um, in that people can produce a, a Grammy award winning album in their bedroom. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's much more fierce and getting the name out, getting people to listen to your, your product has always, I think been the, the one of the harder parts of music, right? There are a lot of people out there who, who generate brilliant songs and beautiful lyrics and whatever. And we never hear about them because um, they just, nobody knows about them, right? Like you don't, how would you, how could you listen to somebody you don't know about? Right. Um, So uh, I think we're, we're living in an interesting time where, where access to a lot of that stuff is easier. Um, So it's, so I can go on Spotify all day long or YouTube and, and, and watch and listen to stuff that I never would, never would like I would never see advertising for the radio would never play it whatever I would never have access to it before um and nowadays we do have access to it but you still have to find out that it's there and maybe that's where these posters and so forth come from it's almost easier like the days of of the guys standing on the corner handing out cds um has changed a little bit and rather than handing out cds which actually cost quite a bit of money to produce um it's you know, why don't you check out my Spotify? Why don't you check out my Spotify? <laughs> it might be, a, it might make things a bit easier. Um, though that's always a hard sell trying to sell somebody on music that you have no, like that have, they don't know who you are. They don't know what kind of music you are. Mm-hmm. You know, what are, what are you, what are you playing? Is it rock? Are you playing the saxophone? What is it? Accordion polka? Like who knows, right? Mm-hmm. That's, it's no way to know until you listen to it. So Josh keeps talking about how small, Canada is and and it's very true in so many ways but inevitably what that ends up leading to is the inevitable question like oh you're you're in Canada you have to know Tom he's from Winnipeg <laughs> you're like well no I'm in Toronto but you said you're in Canada right so you definitely yeah. got to know Tom you guys are both lighting guys and you live in Canada okay so Canada's small but it's not that small and so I, I'm in a unique position where I used to be on one side of that question and now I'm on the other side of the question. <laughs> How many times have you heard that question? Uh, all the time. Uh, it's fairly constant. <laughs> um, for me, it's unique as well because through, through for, like for many different reasons, but, but the way that I came into where I am today was mostly in the US. And so um, I didn't grow up. I did actually work at West Sun um, way, way, way back in the day, um, many, many, very long time ago. And there are people that I still know from that time, but, um, you know, a lot of people I know that I, that I tour with nowadays started at a a shop, be it, you know, PRG or Ed and Ted's or VER or, you know, Epic or whatever, whatever, whatever shop, uh, upstaging, like four wall, you know, whatever LMG, 
and they start at the shop and they gradually get put on tours and they gradually work their way through that system. Um, and so when you do that, I think that you, you look, you meet a lot more people from where you are, right? Because you're going into the shop every day with other people from your neighborhood or from your city. I didn't do that quite so much. And so when people are like, Oh, you know, so-and-so he's, he's in Toronto and he's a lighting guy. I'm like, I don't really, I don't work very much in Toronto, to be honest with you, not in this industry. Um, I do some other stuff in the city, but, um, um, there are, there are only a few people I know of in, in Canada that, um, that I tour with and, and I honestly don't see them all that much. So, so like, uh, you know, so, uh, the, the number of people asking me like, oh yeah, you know, you must know so-and-so I'm like, no, not really. Um, I don't, sorry. Yeah. I get that all the time. And it's, I have a, a different excuse because I'm new. I've only been here for about three years now, sure. but you, I would, they, they would like, but what you've lived in Canada yeah. your whole life and you don't know. There was a really great, uh, how do you, how do you not know Andrew Beck? Yeah, I actually do know Andrew Beck. Hilarious. Ah, but, uh, <laughs> um, <my> <laughs> but there, there's a, the, there's, um, there was a really great commercial. This was many years ago. I can't remember. It was one of the Canadian beers, whether it was Molson or Coor or sorry, Molson or Labatt. I don't know. Um, and it was a, it was a, you've seen it at a bar, you know, and this guy standing there and this, I think he was wearing a, a shirt with a maple leaf on it or something. I don't know. And this girl comes up and she says, Oh, you're from Canada. And he's like, yeah. And she's like, Oh, cool. Do you know Joe from Canada? He works in an office. <laughs> And the guy just turns to her and goes, oh, yeah, office Joe, he's dead. And it turns around and walks away. I, I just, every time somebody asks me that question, I, that's what I think of. It's like, I just, you know, I get it, right? Because if, if, uh, if I'm talking to somebody who lives in whatever city and I know somebody else from that city, I might ask, though, in my case, I probably wouldn't ask, but I could, you know, and, and so Canada is just often seen as like a, a really large city, I think. Yeah. A, a lot of people don't even understand how far apart it is when they're like, oh, Vancouver, Toronto, you, you guys, you guys have to know each other. Like, no, that's yeah. the same distance as New York and LA. It's yeah. a big it's, difference there. It's a big difference both physically and like every other way you can think of, right? It's on the other mm -hmm. side of the mountains. Um, the, the weather is totally different. The, the, um, the style of life is very different there. The work that's mm -hmm. done in those two cities is very different. It's um, yeah, it's not the same place. <laughs> One of the other misconceptions I often get is thinking that Winnipeg and Toronto are a similar climate because they're oh both Canada. But a lot it's, of people don't realize that Toronto and even, even more so Ontario or uh, Windsor where I'm at, like a third of the United States is North of us. Yeah. Yeah. It's we're, we are quite far, quite, quite a bit farther South than I think even most Canadians realize. Yeah. Um, the country really kind of dips down by the great lakes. Um, and, uh, it's a significant difference. Um, it I mean, look, it doesn't, it doesn't help that Winnipeg is in the middle of the prairies and there, I mean, it's, it's flat. Uh, people make jokes about it, but like it's flat. You can, 
depending on where you go, like there's a little town outside of Winnipeg, like 30, 45 minutes, you can probably still see downtown Winnipeg from that town. If you look. Wow. Um, there are four tall buildings downtown, right at the downtown of Portage and Maine. And you can see them from a very far distance apart because the earth is um, very flat there. Um, and so in the winter, you know, the winds come right through. Um, it is farther north than Toronto. There's no, there's a lake, but there's no, it's not one of the Great Lakes. So um, where Winnipeg is, there's no, there's no like, uh, I'm not, I'm not a meteorologist, but I know the lake affects our weather quite a bit. Um, and that, uh, that doesn't exist there really. And so, um, yeah, it gets really, really cold on the upside. It's also way sunnier in Winnipeg in the winter than it is in Ontario. And that, that makes a huge difference. It's a much drier, sunnier place, but you know, it's like minus 30 degrees. So like, that's not, that part's not so great, but you know, you, you, I, it's, it's how I grew up. So I can't even say I adapted to it because it was just sort of how I, how everything was. Um, you plug in your car overnight to make sure it doesn't make sure you can start it the next morning and um, you get really good at shoveling. I have never been so cold in my life that I, 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 I hated my life as being in Winnipeg on tour. I, I really, really hated existence it was so cold <laughs> yeah it's definitely it's definitely a surprise if you've never dealt with it before and i i totally get how how it can be really tough for some people so i mean is, i'm not saying i enjoy it i'm just saying i can deal with it <laughs> yeah. so there is one thing that uh i have heard discussed at great length and you kind of touched on it earlier but there is a feeling that no matter how much you've made it, uh, and I'm using air quotes here, made it in the Canadian touring market, it doesn't compare to having made it in the American touring market or even uh, the lighting industry as a whole. Uh, did you kind of fall into that same thing? Did you ever realize, you know, well, I, this is the top of the Canadian market. I, I have to make it in the U.S. now. Not exactly. Um, I, because I sort of started working in this segment in the U.S., um, I didn't. I didn't. I'd never really done the Canadian touring market. I've toured in Canada, but okay. as part of as part of another tour. Like I, it's not like I um, uh, uh, came up in this environment. So for me, it's a bit of a different story. I think honestly, though, that that. Um, Touring is touring, you know, and I know a lot of people who tour in a lot of different market segments, um, whether it's arena tours or stadium tours or theater tours or club tours um, in Canada, in the U.S., in Europe, in South America. Uh, and I, I think it's important to, uh, one of the things that we as an industry, I mean, one of the you know, added to the list of the many things that I think that we could handle better is um, because our industry, because we are all essentially freelancers and because we don't uh, have necessarily a solid career path, you know, you don't start as uh, the uh, assistant to the sales guy and then you move up to junior sales guy and then sales guy and then, you know, regional manager and then whatever. 
Um, because that doesn't exist, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of um, just unknown, right? Uh, I feel lucky that I'm able to do the work that I do. I never planned to do the work that I do. <laughs> no, I, 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 I have a, <laughs> I went to theater school, so I have a, I have a, I have an arts degree. I have a BFA. Um, and while I was in school, I studied lighting um, because I was really interested in it. And I remember my mom asking me once, so when you graduate, are you going to become a lighting designer? And I said, no, nah, there's no money in it. And so I did a bunch of other stuff when I graduated and it was only after many years that I sort of came back to doing lighting as a full-time job. And I, so, you know, conquering an industry, I think is, is like something that we as an industry should not really be, I don't even want to say focused on, like, I don't, I just don't think it's part of the conversation really. I just don't think it's like something to strive for. I, I think we should strive to be happy I think we should strive to be doing good work that we're proud of and whether that work is, you know, whatever venue that work is, as long as the work is cool and, and you're having a good time and that sort of thing. That's, I think a better um, metric for, for quantifying success, you know? And as I said before, like I do, I do all kinds of stuff that I really enjoy. Like I really, I like the work I do. Um, yeah, there are tons of day-to-day -day things that I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I cannot believe we're still dealing with this, right? Um, but at the end of the day, uh, we, we do a show and, and for a lot of people in that audience, that show is just mind-blowing. And I think that that's one of the coolest things that we get to do. Nobody, and believe mm -hmm. me, I have lots of, I have good friends who are accountants, but like I've never gotten my tax returns back and been like, God, this tax return is amazing. You know, <laughs> like You've and never I'm not even your your CPA. It's like ah, oh, great job. <laughs> I mean, I do. I I I I happen to tell my accountant that she is amazing frequently because she is like <laughs> not a life changing event. You know, I can no. I can think of many times for both me and other people who told me where they were at a show and something happened and they were like, oh my god, this is huge. You know, this is like, not that my life makes sense, but like, I am, I'm feeling things right now. I'm being, I am my, my, you know, I am, I am take, been taking somewhere else. And I think that, that our part of the industry is to, to help facilitate that and to, to just make that as accessible for as many people as we can, right? We want, ultimately we're in the entertainment industry. We should be entertaining and, and in a positive way, right? We should be making, whether it's, um, you know, having a good time at a show, whether it's lighting a poignant piece of theater that makes people think about a topic that they should be thinking about that maybe they weren't um, or whatever it is. But I, I think that those are, those are like actual metrics for, for defining success, not like, well, I'm on all the biggest tours. So, you know, eh. So I, uh, we have totally gone way <laughs> on like we, we never left the first topic and we've That's actually true. filled an hour. Uh, we have to touch on the one that we promised to talk about in the beginning before we just started talking the whole time, but we have to talk about the, the taxes, what it's like to pay taxes yeah. in, in both countries. And it is something that I was ready for. And I, 
I have to keep reminding myself of the benefits that I, that I enjoy the benefits of both countries. Yeah. But can you kind of talk about what it is for you and sure. how it came to be that you have to pay taxes in both countries? Well, to be clear, before we even go there, I just want to point out that I actually, uh, I do pay taxes in both countries and I'm happy to pay taxes in both countries because again, I see the benefits of things in both mm-hmm. countries. The part that I find frustrating is that it is, as you would imagine, a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare. So um, both countries are set up so that they want to know about stuff you've done outside of the country. Totally cool. Mm -hmm. But you, that does give you, get you into a situation where like you can't file one until you fire, file the other, but then you can't file the other until you filed the first one. So like, what do you do? So thankfully I have some very good accountants um, and they, they, uh, I am fairly proactive about this because again, like we talked about at the beginning, I never want to get caught out where I'm screwed. And thankfully for me, January is, is usually a bit of a quiet month. So I can, I can spend a bunch of time, you know, every year I say, I'm going to categorize all my receipts as I get them. And every year I fail horribly because I'm categorizing receipts is just not fun. Really? We're not really uh, good at it. Yeah, I'm terrible at it. Um, Me too. But uh, good to know that I'm not alone. Uh, But basically, um, as a Canadian working abroad, um, Canada taxes me on my worldwide income. So money that I make anywhere in the world, I have to pay tax on. The U.S. taxes me on money that I make in the U.S. Uh, So what I do is I file my U.S. taxes and I pay my U.S. taxes. And then... um, once I've done that, I can file my Canadian taxes. Uh, Canada then takes whatever tax that I've paid elsewhere and uses that as an input credit. So let's say, and, and this works out in my advantage because um, Canada has a higher tax rate because we have things like social medicine and, and um, that kind of stuff. And so the tax rate is higher here. Again, I see the benefit of all that, so I'm happy to pay it. Um, but basically what it means is if I've paid I don't know, grab a random number, five grand in taxes in the US, um, then my Canadian tax bill goes down by Mm -hmm. $5,000. And I can prove, I have to prove that. And one of the, one of the like things that I finally learned uh, how to deal with properly is um, I, Canada is a little vague about how you indicate that foreign income. And for a while we were filing and then every August I would get a letter uh, from the CRA, which is the Canada Revenue Agency, it's the equivalent of the IRS, that would say, hey, totally cool, got your thing, everything's cool, except uh, we don't believe you paid those taxes in the U.S. because you didn't give us the right documentation. So if you could just write us this massive check to cover all of that money that you've already paid that we don't believe that you paid, um, that would be great. And you have to say, but, but I already paid that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, cool, we can talk about it. But while we're talking about it, why don't you just write us this massive check. Um, and then, you know, again, this is why I pay an accountant because they are great at dealing with that. And because this always happens generally when I'm on tour in the middle of nowhere and I'm like, I, I have, and I don't have any of my paperwork with me. Like I, how, how would I even prove this? What, you know, and they're like, don't worry, we got this. Um, but, uh, thankfully I think I've figured out the correct documentation to submit in April when I submit my Canadian taxes. And so that, that works out well. The um, overall paying, paying both those things has been fairly painless um, other than that. 
uh, it's just a bit of a trick to figure out what to do first. Right. Um, and, you know, sort of what order to do it. Um, but again, you know, accountants, they may not, they may not change your life uh, the way we talked about watching a show, but man, they do some good work. If anybody's listening, uh, even well, an, an hour into this, he is touching on such a huge subject right now. If you are having to deal with international taxes, get an expert. Do not try to do it yourself. The, uh, especially right now, the U.S. tax codes are changing per tweet. They're, yeah. People are just scrambling to keep up with whatever is going on down there. And there's, you need somebody dedicated full-time to figure out what you need to do. Yeah. It's, it's what uh, was, what was gospel even two years ago yeah. is not the case right now. Yeah, uh, totally. You can't, uh, you can't itemize anymore. Uh, some things that you used to be able to write off, you can't anymore. It's uh, also, there's a change in our industry as well. Uh, a lot of times when you come into Canada now on a tour, let's say you're on a tour, the tour has a date in Toronto. Um, there's paperwork now that they have to fill out and you will get charged income tax for that one day of work for me. And so you have to fight, technically you have to file in Canada, right? Cause you've been paid in Canada. That's the, right. it used to be that it's like no big deal, like whatever you get your weekly from the, from the tour accountant or whatever. And it's, you know, it's all the same, whether it's, there's been a day or two in Canada or not, not so much the case anymore. And I think a lot of that has to do with, um, sort of the way cross-border business works, um, you know, as a Canadian, because I file taxes in both countries that, that actually it, I can deal with it separately. But for a lot of people, there's, there's this, now there's this added burden of like, you need to, you need to deal with that. Um, I, 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 yeah, it, it is one of those things that I just don't, I don't, I don't ever recommend messing up on because yep. it's, it's, just gets more and more complicated as time goes on. That's a great way to end that one. I do have one more question that we have to get to is, especially right now when we have had 70 plus days of just sitting on our butts, <laughs> are you th grateful being on the Canadian side of the border at this moment? And I don't want you to go too into politics or anything or anything farther than you want to say, but Sure. Uh, are, I mean, are the benefits outweighing the the logistical nightmare? As you know, as I said before, am I grateful to be here? My my friends and my family are here, and yes, I have friends all over the U.S. Um, I'm not stoked about not being able to see people that I love and that people that I would like to be with. Um, mm -hmm. That part is hard. That would be just as hard no matter where I am. You know, wherever I am because of the, the sort of global life that we lead, or at least international or, or national life that we lead, whatever you want to say it, there are going to be people that you can't get to right now. And I think that that's, that's a bummer. And uh, there's mm -hmm. a lot of people that I would love to, um, hell, just, just share a, an in-person conversation with. Yeah, I get that, that right. with social distancing, I may not be able to give somebody a hug that I want to, um, or whatever, but... Uh, um, yeah, there are people that I miss. That part is hard. Um, and it makes, it makes a lot of things hard, right? Because we are, we are separated from people in a time of great uncertainty. 
And so for a lot of people, human contact is what gets them through times like this, right? You know, like, oh, your, your big tour just canceled and you got nothing for months on end. Maybe I'll go hang out with my buds, right? Or maybe I'll go out for a beer with somebody or maybe or whatever. I mean, um, go over to my friend's house for dinner, whatever it is, right? And we can't do that right now, which is, right. which is not great for a lot of people. So I'm thankful that I am able to see at least a few people that I care about and that I'm hopeful that, that I get to see everybody that I would love to soon. I'm, I think that this time right now is pretty unique, terrifying, but unique. Um, there's a mm-hmm. lot of stuff that I've kind of been working on that I normally wouldn't take the time to because I wouldn't have that time. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's useful and that's cool. But underlying it all, like there's, we, I don't think we can minimize the fact that there's like a lot, a lot of stuff happening in the world that's pretty scary. It's hard not to be able to turn to people uh, and just, you know, support each other in the way that we normally would. And I think that, that one of the nice things about this happening at this point in history is that we have some alternatives. I mean, we're on a Zoom call right now, um, mm-hmm. which is great. Uh, is it the same as sitting in the in the same room, you know, bullshitting for an hour? No, it's not the same. But it's a hell of a lot better than sitting in a room by myself, unable to talk to or communicate with anybody. Absolutely. So I'm grateful. I don't. I I, I don't think that the that the Canada U.S. border thing makes a huge amount of difference um, in that respect. I think that our countries all have unique problems and unique um, challenges ahead both, uh, you know, on all fronts, on everything that's going on in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that um, I look forward to working through some of these things in the country that, that is my home. And I look forward to seeing how a country that is like my surrogate home, which is the U.S., I look forward to seeing them work through some of these challenges as well. Um, there are limits to what I can do as a, as a, uh, a Canadian, I'm not allowed to vote and I can't um, affect the election in any way. Um, foreign money in an election, if you're playing by the rules, uh, is hugely frowned upon and I try and play by the rules. And so the best I can do uh, is be there as a support and a friend for everybody that I care about and anybody that needs it. And um, I don't know. I, I know it sounds cheesy, but I kind of feel like everybody might be a bit better off if, if there were more uh, worrying, if everybody was worrying more about people and what's, you know, what's best for people as a whole and what's best for make, you know, just making, just making things better, basically. Uh, it's not very articulate. I get it. No, that's uh, the, the sentiment is coming through loud and clear. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, what? How? How do you feel about being uh, here versus somewhere else? I have gone through things similar. I mean, obviously nothing's been quite the same, but I've been through the the depression of two thousand eight and nine eleven, and uh, some some major world traumatic events in the U.S. And then being on this side of the border, going through the just a barrage of major world events that is 2020 i find it refreshing to 
to see elected representatives even pretend to care about people and show some form of empathy and actually follow through on their actions. I like seeing people come across the the border or sorry, across the the divide to help each other out. I, I haven't seen any quantity of partisanship appear. I haven't uh, from within people and within the elected representatives. And that that is something I'm, it's foreign to me. uh, Literally. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It's Uh, one of the things that I I have been very happy uh, about. I'm not suggesting that everybody has done an amazing, you know, flawless job on anything. Um, But I am very proud of, of our government for, um, sort of immediately immediately identifying or trying to identify where problems were and then to try and uh, fix that and then continue to iterate on those fixes, you know, mm-hmm. um, be it financial support or uh, whatever it is, they have been working and that, that I think is great. And it's nice to actually see results and it's nice to see that, um, you know, as, as, so a great example is, is we have a, um, a, a benefit here. I don't know what the correct term is, but basically uh, if you've lost your job uh, or, or have no work due to the virus, you can apply for financial assistance <clears throat> uh, through the federal government, which is great. Um, and when they rolled that program out, which they did incredibly quickly, um, there were, there were some parts that were problematic. Like they said, okay, you can apply for this if you haven't, if you earned more than $5,000 in the previous tax year. Well, there were a bunch of people that were students that said, well, cool. Like I only work during the summer and I didn't earn $5,000, but now there's no work. Mm -hmm. So what do I do? And they figured out a solution to that. There were people that were like, okay, so I can only apply for this if I'm not earning any money. But I teach piano lessons to the neighbor next door for $25 a week. So like that $25 a week either knocks me out of getting this financial assistance to help me pay my rent, or I have to stop teaching piano to the kid next door. Right. And they said, oh, you're right. Okay, let's change the rule. So now the rule is something like you haven't earned more than $1,000 or something like that. So like right. they have been responsive in that way. And I think that part is nice. Um, uh, it has been nice to see that there has been a, sort of a concerted effort to actually help and not just fight. Yep. Um, which I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, I'm, uh, you know, as, as a Canadian, that makes me happy. Right. So I, I kind of want to sum this up with one uh, perfect example. Uh, recently mm-hmm. I saw that SOCAN and the federal government put together a program so that people, independent artists can go on Facebook and do live performances and get paid by SOCAN through subsidies from the government to monetize their Facebook live feed. And it's nothing huge. It's like 150 bucks if you have over a hundred participants. Right. But it's something. It's, it's, That's it's something. 
it's SoCan, basically by the way for those who don't know is a is the music licensing one right. of the one of the several music licensing agencies in canada and it's just it's hey you guys can't busk anymore we'll help you we'll help you out yeah and that that is i will pay i'll pay taxes that's where i want my tax money to go towards right yeah. I, i'm perfectly happy knowing that my tax dollars are going to pay buskers to continue to to survive and feed their families that yeah. part makes me feel really good that is very cool i will have to look some of that up yeah. um and go watch some feeds yeah so we have gone way over time this has been so <laughs> awesome but we are definitely gonna have to do a part two to this I one be, i didn't i would cover. be so happy we have like a whole list of things that we didn't even talk about <laughs> uh, you guys can't see but i had a list of 10 things and we didn't get past number two so we will definitely <sighs> have to do part two to the and josh and wait Chris. wait well you gotta leave it as like a like a clickbait thing you'll never guess what number seven was <laughs> <laughs> you'll never guess <laughs> thank you so much josh we will uh, definitely have to continue this Thank you. I would be happy to. This was a lot of fun.